Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Right? Like, that's literally what we did. That's what I did. I was tweeting it. I was, I, I was protesting. We'll get them out the street. We'll get them out the street. That was pragmatic. It is, at, at some point, we have to decide that we care about each other. And if we have to wait for other people to pass a law to tell us that, okay, now you can care about people, we are beyond fucked. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Stop and Search, and this is a special episode called Drug Policy Unfiltered. We're listening to superstars of drug policy, international guests, policy experts, the absolute cream of the crop, and they're ripping up the script. They're being honest. This is from the heart, and my word that I go for it. So thank you so much for listening, and let's go for it. So, yes, you're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST, in association with Law Enforcement Action Partnership across the globe. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Thank you for joining us. A very special episode live from the Cranston Conference in February. And because it's live, it's a little bit rough and ready, it's not studio quality, but listen to the guests. It's their voices and it's their sentiment that provides the quality. We pitch the question, what's your drug policy irk? What needs to get in the sea? And it yields some very, very interesting results. So every guest introduces themselves, they say what they do, and then they give their drug policy irk. And a small disclaimer, you know how it works. It's it's an episode with individual voices. It doesn't represent anybody else other than the individuals. You know we have to put that disclaimer. But thank you so much for the guests and their honesty. We wanted this to be an honest discussion, and it really, really was. There's so many takeaways from this episode. Thank you to Cranston for everything you did for putting on this episode, for organising the conference. Thank you to Peter, absolute legend, for all you did on the organisational front. Find Cranston, please do. Cranston.org, their website, and Cranston underscore org on Twitter. And if you want to be part of Law Enforcement Action Partnership across the globe, please do at UK Leap in this country and Police for Reform in the US. And let's get straight on with this episode. And a small disclaimer from me, don't listen to my voice. I'm losing it. I have a flu during the episode, but it's all about the guests. That's where the honest, beautiful sentiments come from. So on that note, this is Stop and Search. Here we go. My name is Neve Eastwood. I am Executive Director of Release. Release is the UK Centre of Expertise on Drugs and Drug Laws, that is the strapline. 
Um, and we provide legal services to people who use drugs. We do drug advocacy. Um, and we also campaign for drug policies and broader social and economic policies based on racial and social justice. Is that too long? That's perfect. Um, my pet hate, there are so many hates in this field. You mean, like, I've already reeled against the uh, treatment sector last night. Sorry, folks, but, you know, do better. Um, but what I would say is, I, I think one of the things I really dislike is the demonization of people who supply drugs and the idea of drug users being um, victims. You know, so one, that takes away the autonomy of people. Two, it doesn't recognize how the market works because anyone who uses drugs will be providing drugs to someone else. Um, and also it's really uh, damaging. So especially, I think, um, within the movement, sometimes we can focus on doing these very binary analysis of the market and saying we need to have reform in order to protect the victims, the drug users who have no autonomy, um, at the expense of you know, ramping up punishment against people who supply. And as I say, that's kind of fluid position. So in that sense, I think we really need to be much more careful around our language, around our advocacy strategies and our policies. And that's kind of more reflective of in the movement. I mean, obviously, I hate the drug laws. Obviously, I hate criminalization. But I think, you know, we need to be very true to ourselves about what we're advocating for here and what we're advocating for are the dismantling of the structures that are used through our drug laws to oppress people. I feel that deserves a round of applause. I, I personally agree with that as well because the, the line is so fine. A, 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 yeah, you wrap it in. The, uh, a dealer, in, in inverted commas, behave in the front there, the uh, dealer in inverted commas is, is such a fine line. It can be it could be you before you even know it. And, and we are guilty of that in drug policy reform that quite often we talk in terms of black and white, good and bad. So how can we be more affiliated to what you've just said? How can we help that? So I think, as I said, language is really important. So let's not use things like drug dealer, you know, because that feeds into the media narrative that you are very um, rightly critical of. So things like using supplier, share, I mean, we have a T-shirt outside that's on sale called Nice People Take Drugs. Nice people also share drugs. Nice people also sell drugs. And yes, there are bad people in this market. There are people who use violence. But you know what? That happens in legal markets too. I mean, that, that's about capitalism and it's about control. And, you know, we've had really deep conversations over the last less than 24 hours about how often drug policy isn't about the drugs and it's all really actually about... The, the fact that we are targeting people who are living in deprivation and people of colour, you know, it's about the social control and racial control. So I think part of it is bringing truth to that narrative, you know, so, so not diluting what you said, as I've said already. Um, and I think, you know, also, and I suppose this is what we could do as a sector and, and certainly for folks in treatment, is not infantilizing people, not taking paternalistic approaches, which I think is part of also that, that, that victimhood narrative. People who use drugs are just people who are making rational decisions to often um, situations, using their drugs to, to manage situations um, in a way that makes sense, actually makes sense. You know, so, I mean, and this is a bit 101, so sorry. Um, but you know, people who use heroin 
often, not always. Some people are happy, you know, do it for fun. Some people are doing it in order to manage their lives. But often it's it's a reaction to trauma. I mean, it's about dealing with emotional pain. Um, and that seems strange to, to, to people who work in this field, but also to people, the general public. And in fact, to, you know, today in this country, diamorphine, street heroin, our pharmaceutical heroin will be prescribed to thousands of people for pain, physical pain. And this idea that there is a difference in some way between the experience of the individual, there's obviously a difference in terms of where they're having to access that um, medication. As I say, not everyone needs it for, for, for um, medicinal purposes. But you know, I think some of those things, like bringing that, that light to it, thinking about the fact that when you work in treatment, you're working with a human being who has complex issues, who is existing in a very complex and, and, and punitive environment. And how do we make sure that we're meeting people where they're at, not doing these very binary kind of definitions? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I think it might even play into something that Alex said to me just as we was having a very quick briefing. So if we could go to Alex now of introduce yourself and what your drug policy ERC is. Yeah, my name is Alex Stevens. I'm Professor in Criminal Justice at the University of Kent. I'm Chair of the Drug Science um, Enhanced Harm Reduction Working Group and I'm also a board member of Harm Reduction International. Um, I'm mainly an academic, and so I think I count as the wonk on the panel. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to make quite a, wonk, quite a wonky uh, <laughs> irritation, which is when people say they're doing evidence-based policy. Um, and this annoys me for two reasons. Um, one is that there is no such thing as evidence-based policy. And two, everyone thinks they're doing evidence-based policy. So let's go to the first one. Policies are not based on evidence. Policies are based on morality and power. And that's how policy also gets changed, by people deploying their moral motivations and hooking those up to structures of power in a way that get change happened. Nobody has ever changed anything by publishing an article in the International Journal of Drug Policy. It was people picking up those articles and doing things with them that made that change happen. And if you look, if you find a politician saying that they're doing evidence-based policy, you've got to ask yourself, what are they hiding? What is behind that mask, that dissimulation of them trying to depoliticize the political decision they've made to do something by saying, oh, it's just the evidence telling us to do it? What is the value they have behind that decision that they are using the evidence to justify? Because that's the second thing. I've been writing a book about the role of evidence power and morality in making policy. And we in this section of the field tend to use this language quite a lot, that we're the ones who are following the evidence. But outside, they also think they're the ones that are following the evidence. They don't think they're wrong like we think they're wrong. They, you're not going to convince them by saying that you've got the evidence-based policy and there's this piece of shit and hasn't got anything behind it. There are things they can draw on. So for example, take something that is an uncomfortable fact for people who share our opinion, which is that when there was a heroin drought in Australia in 2000, deaths went down. When there was a heroin drought in Western Europe in 2010, deaths went down. Now, there's all sorts of other horrible consequences that happened to that, other deaths where other drugs went up, but the overall level of deaths went down. The restrictions on availability of oxycontin you were talking about, Zoe, you know, there was 
a, a, a reduction in those deaths when the when the, the prescription monitoring programs came in. But then fentanyl soared. So yeah, there are horrible consequences to the so-called successes of drug control. But we can't ignore the fact that there was a reduction in death, and we have to we have to tackle that fact in a way that doesn't assume that we are the only ones who are enlightened. We are the only ones with any evidence on our side. We have to tackle the issue of reality is complicated. There is going to be ammunition for every position in the drug policy field. And we have to stop thinking that just by harking on our evidence, we're going to persuade anyone. That's really interesting because I fully hold my hands up that I am not an academic. I am far from an academic. And what I've done in drug policy is I come from a music background like the guys over here. So I've tried to do, how do we get the last bum off the seat to dance? And that has always been my philosophy. So I am so guilty of using evidence-based policy a lot, especially in a world of 140 characters of tweets. How do I change my language? If I am trying to make a point of, look, this is an outdated model, how, what language should I be using instead of evidence-based policy? That's certainly not a 140-character answer to that. <laughs> and I'm as guilty as you are. You know, it's a very convenient language to slip into, that the evidence is on our side, we'll use that evidence. But I think if we, if we move our thinking away from thinking the evidence is going to win, what is going to win? I mean, there's, and there's two ways of doing that. Either you take power and force your power on those people, or you find a bridge, a language that you can both build something on. And in my research in the UK, that language is about compassion. That you know, if you can persuade people to accept that the people who are dying of drugs are just as human as you are, and that they deserve compassion just as you do, then you can make change. That's what happened in Scotland. You know, that's how the narrative was changed. So it became like a national shame that so many people were dying. It became a national duty to do something about it. So that's, you know, I'd be interested, you know, this, the people on this panel will have different views on the political strategies. But I think finding a language that links your cause to other people's cause is a way of making that change. I really do find that fascinating because I've always been wary of going for the, the kind of heart approach, the emotional approach because of the world that we, and the circles that we walk in. I've always felt that I should bow down to, to academic work. So should we be employing more heart and more emotional tactics? Well, in the research I've been doing about how drug policy changes, I've been talking about something I call affective power. Affect is emotion, sentiment, the way we feel about things. And when policy changes, it's often because there's an affective power has been deployed. So take, for example, how we got the very limited but welcome legalisation of cannabis-based products for medical use. That wasn't years of people producing evidence about the medical effects of cannabis. It wasn't even, unfortunately, the many years of campaigning by people like the United Patients Alliance who were campaigning for their own liberation and their own right to grow and use cannabis. It was achieved by using the story of two young boys who were suffering from treatment-resistant epilepsy, especially Billy Coldwell, and the use of that story by a very skilled political operator who was able to ally it with some money he had from an internet a millionaire and use that as a campaign to, to put politicians in a position one week in the summer 2018 where they had to make a decision. Are we going to take this effective cannabis-based medicine from this young boy who is suffering multiple fits 
or an epilepsy, or are we not? And when the police, and when you can create an effective press clamour, which was effect, which was created that summer by these effective political operators, it became impossible for the politicians to continue saying yes, we're going to make that boy suffer. So, the use of affective power to put politicians in a corner where the only decision they can make is to do what you want. That's what worked in that case. That's absolutely fantastic. And this is something that on Monday I was in an event with Cassandra and this is something you sort of talked about. It was, you know, the lived experience definitely counts, especially in, uh, it's if you could introduce yourself because obviously you've got a very different perspective coming from the United States. It must be quite interesting seeing what you've done state by state and how little movement has been over here in this country. So if I could get you to introduce yourself, Cassandra, and what your ERG is. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Cassandra Frederick. I am. Uh, I work at the Drug Policy Alliance. Drug Policy Alliance is a national organization in the U.S. that works to end the criminalization associated with drugs. My ERG in the drug policy space today that ERC that I will focus on is the distinction between soft and hard drugs. I find that drug exceptionalism is selfish. Um, I think a lot of people try to base it in evidence. Um, but if a drug is illegal, the whole shit is illegal. So, like, I don't know why you think yours should not be illegal and other things should be illegal. Using the same arguments that we're using for all drugs... So that is very annoying, and we've seen it over and over again, and we see it happen in different ways. So, like, you know, the cannabis people used to be really annoying, and now the psychedelics people are very annoying. <laughs> or, like, even in the harm reduction spaces, the people that inject drugs versus the people that smoke drugs they have their own, like, ideas around, like, who's better or what's, you know, less terrible. Um, and I find it distracting. I completely agree with that because it's something, taking Alex's point on, on board as well, when I was personally campaigning in the start of 2010, I tried not to go down my own personal anecdote route because I took tutelage from leave that, you know, we should focus on the drug laws themselves and me as a cannabis consumer, it, it didn't matter. It was, it was very much about the broader issue. So do we need to focus more on the policy? Uh, do we need to think, think in terms of uh, criminalisation? What, what, what route do we take from that? Well, I also find that our policy priorities tend to be self-interested. And so I do not regret uh, focusing on cannabis policy for a long time because I thought because so many people had used cannabis, it was a way, it was like a galvanizing way to create a shared experience to build a policy conversation um, but I think some of it is, I think there's a, I think there's a point where we really have to focus on the idea that what's not good for this person is also not good for that person, which for me is the strategy is really about having the conversation about abolition in general, because if we're really clear that there are, that someone who uses, um, heroin should not be incarcerated, then the same reasons that you're saying that about heroin are the same reasons you would say that about cocaine and crack. But this idea that we have to do single class drug campaigns as a way to build power, 
um, actually uh, fractures power more um, because some, a lot of times because people are self-motivated, most of those people will leave um, and new types of people will come in. So now even in the cannabis space, you don't even have that many like cannabis consumers in the space anymore. You have cannabis capitalists that are in the space now, right? That are pushing the policy because they want to make money, less so about the access or the criminal justice impacts of it. And so I think, you know, one of my irks is the exceptionalism and the way that it shows up in policy is like, what are the types of campaigns that we run? So there's a lot of beef or there's a lot of conversation, spirited conversation about the current movement in the drug policy space now where, you know, there was the decision to do cannabis. And then we like our organization, we have moved to all drug drug conversations, but there's groups in the movement that are still focused on single class work, right? And um, I, it is very unclear to me um, about how we build the power in that because the regulatory schemes that they are creating for the drugs that are being prioritized right now will impact when we eventually get to the other drugs and the regulatory schemes that they're setting up are not conducive for the other drugs, right? Nor do we want to keep going in that direction. Like, I'm not actually excited about the commercialization of drugs. I think that that is problematic to have these companies that have essentially abandoned our community so we found other substances to use and figured out how to build a culture around that and then they get to come back and do those drugs too like it's a problem and i think a lot of that stems from uh drug exceptionalism presumably your strategy has had to be with the ballot initiatives that are in front of you mm -hmm. so does that prove difficult when you have got that in the back of your mind and you are having to do these ballot initiatives that have gone right across the US now. Is that difficult for you to reconcile? It's really difficult because uh, in the States we have a, a referenda kind of process in certain states um, and that's how cannabis reform really got um, supercharged throughout the country is because we, did, we, we could bypass the legislatures, right? So, but the rules of that initiative is that you can only do one subject. So that's why you, when you looked at the cannabis reforms, they didn't include criminal justice. They only focused on the regulation of drugs based on the laws. It's the same thing in Oregon, where we passed all drug decriminalization. You could only do drug decriminalization. It could not also include expungement. And so I think for the referenda, it gets difficult because what's hard is like, there is a push to do decrim and the regulation of psychedelics in the same referenda. But the electorate is very fickle, right? And so they can focus on like a certain amount of things before they're gone. And so it's like, we want to like end criminalization. And it's like, but we're not legalizing drugs, right? Like that's the messaging frame. But if you include legalizing psychedelics in it, then they're like, they're, they're legalizing all drugs. And frankly, we don't have the infrastructure for that. We, we don't have healthcare. So it's like, like, there's like kind of stuff that we're like trying to navigate. So I think part of it is like, none of the tools that are being used to push drug policy reform are perfect. And a lot of them have drawbacks that actually don't get to the point of building actually community power to do the kind of effective change that we've done in the States over and over again. Our most powerful wins have been when we have not passed the law.
that's a powerful point to make. That is, uh, Zoe, I'm going to come to you as, as another North American on the panel. What do you do in your day-to-day life? And also, what is your job policy work? Okay. Um, my name is Zoe Dodd. I'm the com- a community scholar at MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions in Toronto at Unity Health, which is a hospital. Um, and I also am an advocate, worked in harm reduction for 20 years and drug user advocate. Um, for me, I have so many, but I would say that one of my first one is seeing everything through a health and risk lens. Um, we've really set ourselves up because using drugs is not necessarily a health issue. So having HIV, hep C, that's a health issue. Um, And so what it's done is that people call it a health and social issue, but then they prioritize a health issue. And then they, again, going back to this thing of making people into victims, it's easy to blame them um, or to blame drug sellers. It just like puts everything into this perspective of a health lens when it's actually about the law. So drugs shouldn't be illegal. They should never have been illegal. That's just it. Um, and so what we find ourselves in Canada, we did like the compassionate thing where we're like, everybody's dying. People are people, people are dying. Um, and people would use things like you can't recover if you're dead. How are you going to go to treatment without a critical analysis of what that actually looks like? What do you, what do you think you're sending people to? What do you think you're going to refer someone to? So it is. So when the police come on board and say, yeah, we're into decrim, it's only because they see themselves as still not losing their jobs and that they can now be a source of like a social worker and refer people into the system, but still be policing and still be in people's lives. So the framing of a health issue, um, I hate it. I like absolutely hate it. And, um, and yeah, we were, we're, we're setting ourselves up. So that's like a big one that I really, really dislike. And also the drug seller thing. I like to call them drug service providers because, you know, your health care <laughs> provider, your drug service provider, you know. I, I, I completely agree with that. And the health frame is something I've definitely been interested in because, again, shorthand, like Alex was say, saying, the shorthand is easy to go, we need a health-based approach. But what we're finding in this country with politicians is that they agree we should have a health-based approach, but they also don't agree with us that we should have reforms. So it, it does give that scapegoat, that cop-out. So how do we get around that? How do we actually, do we just need better comms? Do we need more lived experience at the front? I mean, I think we need to talk about how dysfunctional and crap the treatment system is. I think we need to stop calling it treatment. I think that also plays into something where, you know, you're on, you're using heroin, but why can't you just use heroin? But then you have to go on methadone or suboxone and their, their retention is crap. And then you're in a system of control. And so then now you're in the system of control where they have like have cuffed you to a pharmacy. And now your life is dependent on being at the pharmacy every day. You can you can barely work. You don't have a you can't travel. You can't have a life outside of things. You can't get carries. And so now you're in this trap, this cage. You're in another cage. You're in another cell. And that's this interrogation that we need to be making because that whole system is also about control. That is one of the most effective tools that the state has to keep the drug war going because it makes it seem that drugs are bad. They're so bad that that you have to go on this system, that we have to control you through a urine drug screen, through all these things. 
you're going on a, you're going on methadone for heroin use, but you're being urine drug screened for other drugs as well. It comes up in your urine screen, and then you're like kicked off your carries. Who the fuck cares if you did cocaine once, like through that week? That's not why you're there. But our system is based on morality and a white puritanical morality, a Christian dominant morality, um, and also about our labor. And so we have to have these broader discussions because when it gets framed as health, everyone says this system works. We need more clinics. We need more of this. We need more treatment centers. But they don't have to show their evidence. They don't have to show their quality indicators or if it works for people. And they don't listen to people who use drugs because it's not made for them. It's made for them. So, yeah. And like, and I think the other issue is because of the health issue thing, that cannabis came in, and it off the backs of people who were like, "We need this as medicine." Those people got fucked. They're, they had their own places. They had their own shops. In Canada, when legalization came, they shut those down. Police shut those down. And, um, and the cannabis community who, who brought in legalization, they didn't care that now these people are all left behind. And the same is happening with psychedelics. Like, if psychedelics, like, cured trauma, oh, my God, I would be so good right now. I would be amazing. I've done so much psychedelics in my life. I'm like, yeah. But $2,000 for a ketamine infusion with a therapist, you can buy a gram of ketamine for 60 bucks and hang out with your friends and probably get maybe a better therapeutic time. But we're going into this medicalization system and the pathologization and everything's getting blamed in that way because that is the way our society is structured. UK, Canada, US, austerity, neoliberalism, the individual, it's crap. I think I've got a good person to bring in here because this, this slightly crosses over to your realm, doesn't it? So if you could introduce yourself and what your job policy irk is. Yeah, hi everyone, I'm uh, Danny Ahmed. I'm um, uh, clinical director at uh, Cranston mental health nurse and uh, psychotherapist so uh, one of the then <laughs> and if you used to have like a room 101 getting the C kind of policy issue or anything within reform what would it be so i actually agree um i think our treatment system is actually hostile to people who use drugs um and one of the things that i'm trying to advocate for and to push for is for a system that is fit for people um, and, and just the example of how somebody who uh, needs to get on a prescription uh, is so difficult. So, for example, you know, you can rock up to a, a treatment service. You've decided that this is the day that you're going to do that, that you're going to get over all of the shit that will happen and, the, and the, the handcuffs that may come for that. And you walk up to the door and it's locked. So the first barrier is you can't even get in the building. The second barrier is once you're in the building and you, uh, you're ready, I want a prescription, I need a prescription, you need to go to a welcome pod. So, uh, I mean, it sounds lovely, but I need a fucking prescription, not a welcome pod. So you go to the welcome pod and you get there and you're welcomed. Uh, can I have a prescription? No, you need to go to an assessment. Oh, fucking hell. So you go for an assessment. And then do I get a prescription? No, now you need to see the clinician. So... How difficult is that for just to start treatment? 
So one of the things that I really want to push in our services is that they're easy to get into, they're easy to stay in, they're easy to get out, and they're easy to get back in if you need them. And I think they're the principles that we've lost. We've, we've, we've lost our compassion in, in treating people, and, and it's been really challenging and really interesting to hear the views of people over the last few days and to hear how oppressed people feel by the system that I sit in, that I work in. So, um, yeah, they're the, they're the things that, that really irk me right now. So there's two points I want to ask you. One, you've just recently had a real knockback, haven't you? Some funding being cut. Uh, so if you can speak about that. But two, also, for what you just said there, do, do we need more terms of... Uh, patient advocacy autonomy you know it should it be more people led having an understanding that not everything is linear you know like you said get in and out uh, the system more accessibility and attainable but also trusting people say look you know we we do give you trust that you know how to consume drugs and how you can use them to suit you is that a conversation we can have yet yeah, I mean, we, we need to have those conversations. And I think, you know, we, we do two people and I think that's part of the problem. So, um, you know, I think our waiting rooms should be living rooms. There, there should be spaces where people can come and chill out and hang out. And as part of being there, you can use drugs in one room and you can get a script in another room. That, that's where we should be moving to, spaces that people feel a part of and own. It's their space. We worked for the last few years to provide diamorphine-assisted treatment to a very small number of people in, in the Teesside area. Um, I don't want to prattle on about the evidence, but the evidence is there that it, it works, and we saw that. People uh, were able to uh, access a regulated supply of a drug that they were struggling with, they did, and, and they, um, they got, they, their lives improved. They got stable. They were able to... Uh, do other stuff other than scrabble around trying to acquire drugs and survive a criminal justice system that just kept picking them up, chucking in jail, picking them up, putting them in jail. Um, but the funding was removed. Um, and the funding was removed because the belief was that that could be better spent to get more care coordinators to sit in another building somewhere else. So instead of being able to allow people access to the medicines or drugs that they need, We've got a, a system where there are uh, 60 care coordinators that don't actually engage very well with individuals because they don't want care coordination. They want access to the substances they need to help them keep stable and to, and to thrive in life. And as the final introduction, I say introduction, but it's taken up most of our time, so that's fine. So I'm going to be coming to you in a second. So Meg, what's your role, your day-to-day -day role, and what annoys you within this realm? So, uh, good afternoon everyone. I'm Meg Jones. I'm Director for New Business and Services at Cranston. Um, and essentially we believe in empowering people and empowering change. Um, prior to my role at, at Cranston, I uh, previously worked for five police and crime commissioners. Um, they are, for anyone that doesn't know from a UK context, they are relatively uh, new in the kind of... Uh, space of politically elected posts that have responsibility for their local police forces um, and in the West Midlands uh, as head of policy I co-authored and then delivered the eight-point plan around a new approach to drug policy uh, there and I think just picking up on on Danny's point actually um, I think one of the things which 
uh, I would I would pick up is we have had an absence there, which has left a, a huge gap. And I think one of the things that we have seen, particularly in, I guess, from an England perspective, is that actually the police have had to kind of step in to that to that gap. And I think that's why you do see, and you know, Leap and, and others, a, a huge number of, of police officers and others who, who get that. So they come forward and they realise that actually they are making things worse. Um, and is it right that we've had police and crime commissioners and police step into that space to provide harm reduction and be at the forefront of essentially what you could argue them be as drug policy actors in this space, trying to look at diversion schemes and fund uh, diamorphine or heroin-assisted treatment. Um, That often is because actually policing are stepping into the gaps which other people, in terms of funding, are are not. So there is a real difficulty there in actually, should they be doing it? Probably not. Um, and, uh, you know, there's that, there's that whole thing which has meant that over the past kind of uh, 12 years, perhaps slightly longer, you have had people like uh, Ron Hogg, Ma- uh, Mike Barton up in Durham, North Wales, um, West Midlands, that, you know, when you go to um, things across the UK, they are talking about what we can do differently um, and what we can do in the space. And, and we wouldn't be expecting to see that. Um, but it is, but it is happening, and I think whilst you know that that's the frustrating thing because it, whilst it's a positive that they are showing some leadership in the space, it's also a massive negative because they shouldn't have to step into that space. That's, that's really good that you mentioned Ron Hogg and also Arthur, uh, Arthur Jones in, in North Wales because they're both elite members. So the, the role of PCCs were quite contestable when they came up. It, it was very much politicising the police. But as you said, we've had some fair results off the back of it. So with hindsight, the way up, has the PCC role been worth it? Or could we get some more reforms via that route? So I guess another I guess another pet peeve from that is we've now got a bit of a system where there's a postcode lottery. So you can step into one police force, be found in possession of a drug and you don't get a criminal record off the back of what's in place in that in that police force, but you can cross over into another police force, you know, literally a street over, and you're dealt with through the criminal justice system. Um, and obviously that relates back to the disproportionality around stop and search and the likelihood of you actually being found in possession of, of, of drugs. Um, and and I, I really agree, it comes back to that point of, and I'm also very guilty of talking about evidence-based policy, um, and we need to perhaps start shifting that debate because, it, unfortunately, it's the thing that gets action by talking about the evidence, going into a conversation, talking about the cost effectiveness of something um, rather than starting with the people. Because actually, you know, we are finding that y- you've really you, you've got to kind of have that argument about evidence, about cost effectiveness. And we need to continually be trying to flip that on its head so that we're constantly starting coming back to the impact on, on people. Um, and, and we have just, we have uh, kind of lost our way with that. So I think we are finding a massive pet peeve of, of a postcode lottery um, that just exists uh, so much across 
across the UK, really. It's so true. And also the fact that we've now got a collection of PCCs that are now trying to get cannabis as a Class A. And, and NOS, actually, as well. Yeah, right. So, so on that, uh, you've got us in a, in a crisis of comms, Alex, the fact that we can't use evidence-based policy now. That's like, we've got to rethink this. <laughs> It's, it's a fair challenge. Can I just clarify? I'm, I'm not saying don't use it. <laughs> knowing is obviously better than not knowing. You know, we need to develop knowledge about how to better liberate people, better emancipate people, better empower people, and how to stop suffering. We need to know what works in doing that. But what we shouldn't do is expect the mere existence of that knowledge somewhere in an academic journal to change anything. That makes sense. You look like you was nodding through that leave at some point. Uh, the various different people. Have you got opinions on on what people have said with regards to comms? Because release are very good at comms. Yeah, you do so much casework, but you're also brilliant at your output as well. How do we address everything that's been said? I did say take it easy on me. No, you've got to solve it. You've got to sort it all out for us. Um, so how do we do that? You mean? <sighs> It's difficult, isn't it, the, the, the comms piece, because we, it, it's about the different audiences that we're trying to influence. Um, and, you know, I, we all work in small organisations and we are expected to try and change public opinion, change, uh, and who is the public also? Like, you know, who, 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 who are we talking about? Um, and, you know, change politicians' view and decision makers in other fields. And I think... You know, one of the things that, that, that we've really tried to do more recently, because we have been guilty of publishing lots of evidence, lots of graphs, lots of data, um, which is important. Like, I think the data is so important, but the stories are important. You know, so I think we've been internally discussing how we shift from just doing the data, doing the data, but but in a much more streamlined way, and then the story. So, you know, with this year, for example, we'll be publishing a piece on strip search. Um, and, you know, if, if you don't know, um, strip search in the UK can happen as part of a stop search. You don't have to be arrested. So it's a continuation of that, that police intervention. Um, 80, oh, sorry, 87% of the searches that were carried out by police between 2018 and 2020 were for drugs and that's coming from a street stop and search so think about that you know think about the fact that you're talking about someone who is not going to be in a large quantity of drugs not that I think if they are they should be strip searched but we are talking about a hugely disproportionate response to it but the data doesn't tell you about the feeling of being brutalized and traumatized in that way and so I think what we are doing, and we're, we're working with media sources, so Tortoise Media did a podcast with us last year about, like, how do we do that storytelling? And that goes right from, like, the policing point and the brutality of policing for people who are stopped in search and afraid of being stopped in search every single day, right through to the... Um, the criminal legal system. I'm stealing this from Katrina French rather than the criminal justice system. Um, and, and through to like the stories that we need to tell about the experience of people who are trying to access treatment. So it's across that piece in communications. And I think we need to get better at it. I don't think we're very good at it. Um, I think part of that is the just the stretched resources that we all have and, and how do we tell those stories in a way that is um, supportive, respectful, 
centers the person in their story and that they are comfortable telling it and providing them with the resources to telling them and not being extractive. So like every time that you have the story of someone who's been impacted by the criminal legal system or policing, you know, they need to be paid the same as you're being paid for your job. You know, like we need to really start to think about how we are investing in people when they are giving so much of themselves to help us change, to, to help us build a movement and change policy. That's brilliant. And now I'm going to come and infect the audience. And if I can, I'm going to come over here first because you was talking to Danny. Uh, and I didn't have a microphone on you. That's fine. Let's go for it. So what was you saying to Danny? So, I mean, when you talk about evidence base, and I think that's manipulated, actually. Um, You know, where is that coming from? Some researcher in a university that actually... They know each other in a past life, can say whatever the fuck they want in that evidence, to be honest. If the numbers don't work, we'll talk in percentages. And I've actually delivered a pilot programme, which was shit. But actually, if you read the evaluation, it sounded absolutely amazing. Um, So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, so evidence-based, I ran a drug service for uh, 18 years and... Uh, I had a chef that provided food and we provided breakfast and we had showers and washing machines and da da da. We had an odd group and key work here and there if people felt like it. But um, an evidence base, I was, you know, top quarter, you know, since we lost the NTA and we've now gone into health, which is all bollocks, but I was the top numbers, top outcomes, top quartile for 14 years. Yet yeah, I got closed down because I looked like somebody's front room. You know, I, I, I drive back through, I'm not even going to tell you what borough it is, but we've got lots of politicians that live in that borough. I drive through that borough all the time and I see within a month of us closing down, four of my, my gang were dead within a month. You know, and actually people with really multiple complex needs, with diagnoses and this, that and the other. And, you know, I had a client that... He was diagnosed schizophrenic. He was really fragile. They kept shoving him residential detox and telling him he needs to be abstinent. What did he do? He stopped taking his meds for his schizophrenia. And then, you know, and I see him, how he's still alive, I don't know. But, I mean, come on, we need to just fix this up, don't we? I think I'll just open my house up. Yeah, a round of applause for that. I think Danny and Zoe are good ones to address that. Zoe, what's, what's it like, Zoe, from your perspective of being so frontline like you are? And hearing stories like we've had there, you, you must have seen the worst case scenarios. I mean, that happens all the time because the government has socially abandoned people and they don't want us to hand out like food to people or supplies. Like right now with, with that financialization of housing, we have a huge housing crisis. We have people on the streets And instead of helping people, we're blaming people, saying they're addicts, saying they have mental illness. That's why they're there. Not that. And it's like, what causes homelessness? Not being able to pay your rent. Right. So instead, we're blaming individuals and then organizations that are trying to be a buffer to help people survive. They're not allowed to do that work because the government wants doesn't want them to do it that way. So we'll hire case managers to help you find this mystery home that you'll never get. So I think. That, again, goes back to a neoliberal agenda, and it's a very conservative agenda of blaming individuals for a structural problem, a problem that has been created by the state. Um, I think for me, one of the things that really irks me is I, I hate the police. Like, I really hate the police. And I hate this idea that police are benevolent and that they're, they can be good people and that because they work for a system that is violent that can destroy people's lives. And so one cop might be a good cop to some people. And so when we think about the money that goes to policing for things like doing community work, 
um, that's where we need to be defunding the police and that funds need to go into community work so that your, your project doesn't get defunded and flatlined or Danny's project. That's the problem is that they take the funds away from community. They're doing that now in Toronto where we've had an increase in um, violence on our, TT, on our transit system. It's always been there, but it's gotten substantially worse. And so they're like, oh, we need to put 50 more cops on the transit. Well, what the hell is that gonna do? And so this is where we also need to push back within like what we're doing is saying, no, actually, every all of our reforms or what we demand have to come with the funding, these structures that oppress and lock people away. And we have to be very frank about it because it, they can come in in such insidious ways. Like we had police go on harm reduction. Uh, we found out one of the community organizations was doing that. And us as like a community of workers, we were like, fuck that. You, you can't go out and give people needle exchange supplies and then also be part of a system that criminalizes you for using drugs. That's not how this works. If you want to do that, then quit your job and become a community worker. But that's not your job and you can't be doing that. And so we shut it down. We organize and shut that down. We won't allow that where we live um, because the role of the police is not good for people who use drugs. We want them out of people's lives, not in their lives. And so like, and just to say like in, in Alberta where things have gotten very fucked up, um, you can swear on your podcast, I'll right? Go for okay, it. thank you. Um, Cause I can't not swear. Um, where things have gotten very fucked up, the police can take someone, they go into a holding cell, they can make them get a, an injection for sublocade. They can force them onto treatment. An injection of sublocade. Like if you don't wanna be on sublocade, why can a police officer make you do that? And that's where things head. So you can see these things just coming from a mile away. And we have to be very firm in our belief that we don't want that. We don't want those kinds of interventions. We don't want that. Um, so, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and Danny, the, we, we've been speaking about funding uh, and the fact that you have had things cut. Have you now got tangible fears about the, the patients that you've seen? Do you think we are going to see some pretty horrific incidents because of what the funding issue's done? Uh, quite simply, yes. So the, the guys who were um, on the dimorphin assisted program um, are really, really struggling. Um, they have um, returned to being street homeless. They have returned to uh, not engaging with treatment, so not being able to get in and stay on a prescription because it's not the right medicine, so why would they? Um, and starting to uh, to re sort of reenact with the, the criminal justice system, really. So they are... They are no longer benefiting because the medicine they require is is not available, and I think so. A broader point um, around sort of the frustrations really is the recovery agenda that we're trying to operate within, and and, and that really is hampering uh, any ability to just focus on harm reduction and stability. Um, we we glamorise recovery within within um, the UK, so. You know, there are a lot of organizations that have poster boys and poster girls who have been on this wonderful journey of recovery. Well, for some people, their early lives have been so traumatic, they can't recover because they never had it. So this is not a journey that is possible for some people. And it's not a journey that some people want to be on. Some people might be on a journey of discovery, and that's absolutely fine. 
but some people just want to use drugs and they just want to use them in a way as safely as possible. And we, we can't have that kind of conversation um, in a healthy way uh, and receive funding is, is quite simply the way, that, the, the way that it works for us right now. I, I would prefer to be uh, funded privately. And I've been chatting with Zoe about some of these things um, because I'm not beholden to government targets and a government agenda. And, and that might be the way that we can push some of the innovation and change the dial away from a recovery-laden agenda. Right, you guys. Oh, yeah, Brad, looks definitely. Looks like we've got a question over here, right in the front row. I promise to be responsible. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I've actually got a bit of a peeve, and it's for Alex. You said something where, you know, the Journal of International Drug Policy is grey and people read that and make changes. I remember in 2015, I came off heroin 15 years before and I found out that two-thirds of people who took heroin had experienced childhood trauma. But the only way I found that out was behind a paywalled journal article that if I hadn't have been at uni would have cost me 40 quid to read. So my question is, it's, it's a great journal, but there is, do you not find it frustrating that so much of this information or evidence is yet again paywalled and gatekept and only certain people can access it? How do we do something about that? How do we get it out there? Because who is reading this and why can't everybody? Oh, my God, you are, you are singing to the choir. Sorry. <laughs> Please, you, you've let me do a rant about my favourite subject, which not many people like hearing rants about, so I'm going to rant about it. Elsevier is the company that owns the International Journal of Drug Policy. It makes a... And I'm going to take a little detour via the Mexican drug market. I once had a chat with the guy who is in charge of detecting money laundering in the Mexican drug market, and he told me, what we do is we look out for companies that are making beyond a certain profit threshold, and we suspect them of... And we investigate them because we think they're probably money laundering. He told me that that profit threshold that they look for, say, for example, in the Mexican construction industry, is 12%. That's the profit margin. The profit margin that Elsevier, the owner of the International Drug Policy Joke makes, is 37%. That is because it's a monstrous, staggering figure. And the reason it, they have that much profit is because their, profit, their business model is that academics are paid by taxpayers to go and extract information for free from people who use drugs and then give it for free to the journal, who then gets some more academics to review it for free for the journal, who then sell it back to the universities at thousands and thousands of pounds. And they're shit at it. The proofreading <laughs> service that you get from Elsevier is worse than my proofreading and I am half blind. For this reason, I resigned as a senior editor of the International Journal of Drug Policy, and I will no longer submit as a first author to the International Journal of Drug Policy. Don't get me wrong, the journal is great. Alison Ritter, the editor of it, she is, I think, she's one of the people I admire the most in the world as a drug policy researcher, and I regret having to do this. But I no longer can support that particular business model, especially because Elsevier are very aggressive in defending that business model. So my preference now is to publish in open access forums and also to encourage other academics to do so and also to, to let everyone know who's ever been frustrated by a paywall that not only me but every single academic in the world is delighted to get an email saying please can you send me your work because most of our work never gets read. So the evidence that people are actually interested in that comes in an email saying please will you send me it, don't 
always do that. If, if an academic gets irked by that, they're in the wrong trade. So always send us emails asking for our work if you can't find it behind a paywall. Thank you for giving me a chance to rant about that. That's absolutely brilliant. And broadly, like out Cassandra, this is something that Alex spoke to me at the start about, the kind of gentrification of drug policy, the, the class systems that exist. Obviously, the UK has very much got a class system. The, the US doesn't seem to be that synonymous with a class system, but within the drugs policy sphere, I'd imagine there is still that kind of that insidious nature of a, of a class system. Is that right? Have you still got a, a us and them? We have multiple uses and thems. They crisscross across identity. We have cis versus trans. We have like like uh, poor versus not. I don't think I'm poor, right? Like I think the thing that is, it is racialized capitalism. I think because in the U.S. we have a more developed conversation about race, people mistake the conversation about class. And there's, they mistake it as if we don't have it or that classism doesn't exist. The thing that is um, so pervasive about race in the U.S. is that it doesn't matter if you are a rich black person or a poor black person, you're getting your asses kicked, right? It doesn't matter if you are a poor black woman in the hospital um, or a rich black woman in the hospital, you are still very likely to die in giving child, in giving birth, right? And so it's not that class doesn't exist, it's just that um, race in some instances doesn't, it, it, class doesn't change the existence for people that are of different racial classes, right? Um, and what I would say is that the system, one of the things that I've talked said to Neve a couple of times is that I don't have a sophisticated analysis or understanding of the white versus white crime that's happened in Europe, right? Like, it's amazing to me to, like, learn history of, like, Northern Ireland and the UK and all these different things because I'm just like, wait, like, this doesn't necessarily translate the same way from the places that I'm in, but I'm, I feel really strongly that there are very similar underpinning principles in the way that things are operating here. They just may look different, right? And so when, you know, I think when you ask the question, like, you know, like, is classism like a thing in the U.S.? It's, it, 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 it absolutely is. It's just the thing that when they were doing slavery is that they convinced the poor white people that they want to be better than the Africans, right? Like, or like when the Irish come to the U.S. or the Italians come to the U.S., they went through a process of, they had to go through a process of becoming white in the U.S. because they were also at the bottom with the folks that were non-white. And so it's just our classism. Our classism is very much there. It shapes pretty much everything. I mean, you have people like oh God, Jay-Z, who is like a very wealthy black person who's who, when we are pushing a class analysis against him, he then weaponizes his race as a reason to get out of that conversation, right? And so I think it's just a little bit more sophisticated um, because there's so many different kinds of people that are in the U.S. and class is cutting across 
through all of it. But then class and race are consistently fighting because class is not the is not always the defining factor as to why someone has the life that they have. Um, race shows up in that way. And I think there is, you know, the conversation about like what came first. And I think that that is also a distracting conversation because I think they're both always happening at the same time, even if you cannot recognize. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, I wish we had two hours. This is just fascinating. Oh, we've got a question for Peter over here. Let's go for it. The, the main man, the boss. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, uh, Zoe, really... Um, come back to you um the the sort of health uh health-led response you know we should be doing that like a health-led response rather than a criminal justice response when you know in reality we neither need a health response or a criminal justice response because people should have bodily autonomy and should be able to use drugs in a system of freedom and not oppression you know and currently obviously our you know the people that distribute drugs are key workers distributing drugs well, risking their liberty are affected by that. But I get that and that's what I get. But when I talk publicly about this stuff and the media or, you know, like to anybody who wants to talk to me about it when I get the opportunity, um, it's really hard to, how do we lead on that? Because if you say that stuff publicly, you know, I don't think the public are that far over yet. Um, we are, you know, if that was written in a newspaper that they would accept or understand what, what was being said. So, and of course, you know, the, the, there is health interventions, you know, you've mentioned the HIV, you know, Glasgow had the largest outbreak of HIV in the last 30 years just recently in, in Glasgow City Centre, and that's when health interventions, you know, hepatitis C, you know, they've moved to try and eliminate, etc. But how do we frame that? How do we frame that when we're talking publicly? Because we're still on a journey for change so that, you know, our, our current key workers are not what's happened in the US 
completely, and also in Canada, completely torn out the system and you know and 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 spat to one side as if they've as if the 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 stuff that they've been doing and distributing for such a long period of time is just like um you know like i'm saying they're just like cast to the side so how do you change that how do you speak about that publicly um i don't know i've made so many mistakes in my advocacy like i don't know if you've ever watched I, there's this video of me calling out our prime minister at a cannabis thing. And I like, you know, I fell trapped to certain things. Like I was like, oh yeah, we could do a Portugal model. I'd never been to Portugal. Then I went there and I was like, no, like we don't want this. Um, because you are trying to find a way, you know, out of desperation. I think that was like some missteps, the inability to talk to each other about strategy, about how we push something forward making strategic decisions. Like when we were running the injection site in the park, we just were like, okay, we're going to make a very concerted effort to talk about people as people. So let's just keep talking about people as people and just say people, 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 like everywhere. Um, and not to like say that we have to like fight for people to be seen as human beings, which is like just so sad. Um, but it is kind of like that. And so, um, because people are demonized and scapegoated and othered. So I think it is about like what kind of strategy and like everyone needs to talk to each other about what kind of strategy you want to use and kind of get an agreed upon idea of how that will work. And then just sort of be like, yes, HIV. Like we have supervised injection sites were created for HIV and hep C and public drug use. They weren't created for an overdose crisis, right? So we, let's talk about that. That's what, that's what that's for. And that is a good thing. At our sites, we also have hep C treatment. We have, you can get an OAT script if you want. Like that, those things all happen there. It's like holistic care. Um, but people are more than that. And so I think that's where we're trapped. And we have to figure out how, like, I don't have the answer, but we have to figure out, like, do we talk about alcohol as a health issue? Because people love to drink here. And so, you know, like, I think it's wild that cannabis isn't legal because I'm like, yo, I think people in, in the UK would calm down <laughs> if they had cannabis because they really, they just start glassing each other and swilling each other. And it's wild how much they consume alcohol here. It is, a, you, it is like a sport. Um, and so, like, is that framed in a health issue? I don't know. Is it? Yeah. So, but like, so it's like there are health issues that come from that cirrhosis of the liver, things like that. So I think it's just like how we frame it and how we decide to do that and try not to sell other people out as we go and think about what can come in the future. So if you are going to do this thing, if you're going to do it through a public health lens, then they're going to want to know where your referrals are. And they're, they're going to know, but we have to push back and say, actually people are trying to get into the supports they need, like what Danny was saying. They are stopped the moment they come to the door, right? You go to somewhere, you want access to treatment, and they're just like, you talk to this person. And then they're like, can you come back in two weeks and come to this group? And then we're going to decide where you're going to go in the system. And then you have to wait six more weeks. And then you're going to have to wait. Like, and you've talked to like 100 workers. And at that point, you're just like, fuck it. And fine, because like whatever you're going to get into is probably garbage anyway. But And so that, I think, is also what we have to talk about is that people are already trying to get help and that doesn't exist. And then the things that people do go to, like in harm reduction, we haven't done a great job of being like, actually we are those people. If a drug user comes in and they're like, wanna hang out and talk, you're there. You're there, you're doing that all day long. 
If people are motivated to change their lives in different ways, you're helping them do that. Let's talk about that. Um, because our work isn't about handing out kits. It's interrelational. We're having relationships with people. We're building on that. And we don't do a good job of talking about that. Um, and then at the same time, you talk about the system, the material deprivation, the, the housing deprivation, that people can't meet the material conditions of their needs, and that this will increase because, and, then, and also all the deaths. This is an insane amount of deaths here. You don't even have fentanyl. And it is so many people who have died. Why are they dying here? That is just, it's intense. And it is about the conditions which we are forced to live in. And I think that is something that a lot of people, whether on the right or the left, can agree upon and find that common ground. Um, and so we have to find a way to talk like that, to bring it to something bigger. We're having that conversation at home because um, we are in a housing crisis, but the housing crisis is created by financialization of housing. How do you talk about that in a basic way to the general public because we are all facing it. Everybody. Everybody's facing it. So, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think we get trapped. And how do we get not trapped? And you're all great people in this room that should be putting your heads together to be like, let's make platforms. Let's work together to, like, really strategize and get it right. Because that's what we do. We have 80 people talking from across the country. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What's our platform? How are we going to say it? So we can get ahead and, we, and, and think ahead have a platform around treatment, have a platform around health. You know, people should have access. You're privatizing system. Our system's getting privatized. Only rich people like privatization. Talk about that. I'm going to come to Meg <coughs> and then come to Cassandra. Uh, but Meg, on the back of that point that Peter made, your colleague, uh, and also working in what Zoe just said about the sort of the left and right issue, the fact that you do have to kind of, you know, take both considerations in point and, and the lines getting blurred and blurred. How, how do you answer what Peter's just said as, as a colleague, but also with the background you've got in PCC work and everything else? Uh, it's, a, it's a, well, it's a very long, uh, we were talking yesterday about some of the discussions that we had and actually you could go on for hours and hours with some of this, so, and rightly so, and I think that's a really good call to action in terms of trying to formalise some of this off the back of this, this weekend really as well, um, to be able to turn it into action. I think one of the things that, I guess we we politically struggle with from a UK perspective is there's also not that much difference in when we talk about drug policy. Um, there's not that much difference in what the opposition puts forward to to you know either either party, um, and it becomes something that I think uh, and we were talking about this this yesterday that many politicians won't touch drug policy with a barge pole because it's the thing that they will get most criticism on. So then that becomes, you know, basically something that they will agree to you in a private conversation but not want to um, put out publicly because obviously in our UK context we have the Daily Mail test uh, which often kind of leads people to what they say kind of publicly. Um, and, it, I mean, you know, one of the things that is really helpful over this, this weekend is that we have to constantly challenge ourselves because what, I mean, what I've done in previous roles is look at the legal system and what we can change within the current legal system because that's pragmatic that's practical how can we reduce harm with what we've got right now whilst also calling for change further down the line and and you know that is a pragmatic approach to do it is it perfect no because we've got to be calling for 
all of the change that we, we need to see across massive structures. Um, but we also do have to do the short-term stuff of what, what can we do right now? What will help on a day-to-day basis? And there's, there's a hell of a lot to do. Um, and it just, yeah... Not, not one easy answer. Actually. It's, it's really not, is it? And, and Cassandra, you was very much getting enthusiastic what Zoe was saying. What, what points was you going to make? So I agree with Zoe's irk around the health frame. And I also think it's important to not throw that frame all the way out. I think it's, I think my biggest point is like drugs are not only a health issue and they're a health issue for only certain people. Like, it, I think the problem is, is like all of it gets folded under health, which is also a carceral, surveilling, stigmatizing system. People don't see the bars, but there's still doors and handcuffs in jail, in hospitals, right? So I think part of the conversation is how do we actually complicate what the health frame actually is, right? Because what I would think is health is not necessarily what the government would say is health, but I can, I can create all these words and all these terms are made up. Like we made these words up so we can change what they're supposed to mean and actually use language as the weapon, just the way they use it back towards us. Right. And so what does it look like for you to actually see, like, to me, I'm like, I've moved on from like the, even though it's all over the DPA website, which is like, we should treat drugs as a health issue and not drugs are a rights issue right like they are very much a rights issue i have a right to use drugs i have a right to bodily autonomy i have a right to health care i have a right to housing i have a right drugs doesn't take my rights away and so it's a rights frame and but rights includes health right it's just not only health right it's a very it goes back to zoe's point about we trap ourselves in this conversation and also the idea of treatment like even that language like what are you treating right because really what needs to be treated is this society capitalism needs a treatment right like that's really what the conversation is like why are we using their terms right because their terms it's what they're giving to us and we keep giving it back and the thing that i will lovingly push back on is the idea that pragmatism is only built on what they give us it is pragmatic to give someone housing. Yeah. It's actually pragmatic to give someone food. Yeah. It's pragmatic to give someone like medication if they need it. It's pragmatic to like know someone's name and to refer to them the way that they want you to. I don't need a law to tell me how to teach people or treat people. Yeah. Like why are we waiting for law? The law literally says that I was not a human being. That, the pragmatic approach was to act as if you could enslave African people and trot, and trot them around the rest of the fucking world, and that was pragmatic. That was the law. Laws are illegitimate. Why do we act as if laws always are the most legitimate thing? Because something's written down on 500 pieces, 500-year-old paper? It makes no sense. If you are a person with bodily autonomy that has your own brain, why are you letting people that live in these houses that you can never afford tell you how you're supposed to live your life or how you're supposed to treat your neighbor? If humanity and dignity is not pragmatic, then you're fucked. 
We need to stop letting these people teach us how to treat our own loved ones. It's so upsetting to think about the fact that someone gets their freaking service provider closed because they're not supposed to give people a shower. If someone is stinky and then doesn't have and wants water, it's not the law to let them shower. At some point, we have to recognize that we need to push back, that the whole point of it is to build power. I am a social worker trained. I wrote an, uh, a whole chapter about the abolition of social work, which, by the way, you also gave us. <laughs> that whole thing, treatment. Sorry, I had to stand up because I'm really upset. Treatment and all this stuff is based on the idea of maintaining public order so you don't offend the people of higher class. That's what this whole shit is about. They, they gave us supervised injection facilities because they don't want to see them in the street. And, and us, we're like, well, if you don't want public injection, get a supervised injection facility. <laughs> right? Like, that's literally what we did. That's what I did. I was tweeting it. I was, I, I was protesting. We'll get them out the street. We'll get them out the street. That was pragmatic. It is, at, at some point, we have to decide that we care about each other. And if we have to wait for other people to pass along to tell us that, okay, now you can care about people, we are beyond fucked. Like, beyond fucked. And I say that as a person of African descent, who y'all weren't my colonizers, it was the French, and so I can't wait to be invited there. It's like... Can I come? You know what I'm saying? Canada, you know? We, We roll together. It's just... At what point do we understand that we have to stop listening to them because that's the class shit. It's like there's a certain group of people that have so much power that have decided what is sightly, what is the public, right? Because even the public, they're not, most of the people in this room are not the public that they talking about. So like, how do we actually get to the point where we're having a serious conversation about how we treat people? And what are we waiting for? You waiting for the bell to ring? Like, okay, now we can treat you with respect. It's dumb. It's, it's, it, sorry, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> I love you, sis. At one point, I was just standing up, and I'm like, why am I standing? Why am I standing? But I don't know how you don't act. I don't know how you don't act with that many deaths. Like that to me, that is a fucking, that's just the UK, right? Like that doesn't include, that doesn't include Wales. Is that right? Like what the, Wales is in the UK. I know, I know, I know. But the Wales numbers, I know, I'm sorry. But maybe you want to be separate too, like Scotland and Ireland. Yeah, probably. But like that to to me, like how does that not move people to act? Like it moved Peter, but where the fuck was everybody else? I've, I've, I've written about this, so I'll try and give an answer. So th- there's over 4,000 people a year in the UK, if you include all four countries of the UK. That's over 4,000 people a year dying of drug poisoning deaths. And somebody, people quite often ask me, how many more people need to die before we take action? And over the years, I've come to realise that's not, that's not the question. The answer is, who has to die before we take action? And when there were approximately 67 deaths 
because of novel psychoactive substances entering the market from 2008 to 2016 per year, action was taken. Laws were, laws were brought in. Businesses were, were shut down for the, because the people who were dying were young white kids. When it was middle-aged, working-class men who'd been thrown on the scrap heap of industrial deindustrialization in the 1980s, frankly, nobody gave a fuck. And those dyes continued to mount. And nothing was, nothing was done until quite recently, actually. I mean, you can say, you know, the, Scot the Scottish, as I said earlier, it became a national shame. It was made into national shame for political reasons. Um, but it worked in getting money and action towards some at least partial measures to reduce the deaths. In England, it, it wasn't even shame at the deaths. We're still not as ashamed as we should be of that massive death toll. It was still the way that the money was levered out of the government. I mean, it's quite remarkable that a Tory government has given half a billion pounds to invest in the drug treatment system. The, that wasn't because there were thousands of people dying every year. It was because of very skillful deployment of the argument that if you invest in drug, drug treatment, you cut crime. So we have to use that stigmatizing argument in order to winkle out a few crumbs from the table to spend it on the services that are going to save people's lives. That's the depressing fact but about I, British drug policy. But, but a voice from the future, it was white people who were dying in the United States. And they were like, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We have to do all these things. And then what we kept saying is like, if white people are dying, they're just not counting the black ones. And now the black deaths have surpassed the white deaths. And now they're talking about mandatory minimums and all this other stuff. So really, the control thing stays. The who question is very important. And it is a strategy, but it's not a long-term strategy. And it has wild pushback. It's the same for us. We don't have race-based data around who's dying. But you know that it is a disproportionate amount of black and indigenous people. We know that also by who we're burying. And we had 856 deaths where we live. That was enough for us to put an injection site in a park in the whole province of, of where we live. That was enough for us to act. You know, like, what does it take? Like, that was too many people. It was already too many people when it's 50 people. You know, that's why we had naloxone. That's why Dan Big handed out naloxone and then we all got naloxone. Because even just one person dying was enough. One person's death in your life is enough. When is hundreds. And not just that, but then you're like reversing thousands of overdoses. What about all the brain injuries people are getting from overdosing? We don't even talk about that or how endocarditis has increased because people are injecting fentanyl and they go to the hospital and the hospital's like, yeah, but you inject drugs. So we're actually just going to let you die because we don't want you. The cardiologist doesn't want to see you because you're not even human. And that is the point where we're at is like, what does it take? Like, I love what Cassandra said, because what does it take to act? People are way too polite here, but you have a history of struggle in this country where people fought. Like, I don't know, my uncle, he he radicalized me. He was like, I was in the poll tax, tax riots. And I was like, holy shit, I love you. You know, like that's the conversations we had in our home when I was growing up that radicalized me. And I'm like, we're 
where's everyone else? Because we can't just stand by and let people die. I couldn't live my fucking life if I didn't do shit because so many people I care about, family, friends, are dead because of the drug war and not just from overdose, but suicide and gun violence. So, and being locked up and incarcerated. I can't live with that. And I don't want to be just a service provider because services are not radical. They will not do those things. They will actually try to stop you. Yeah, we had an injection site in the park. When we moved inside, the conservative government said we were going to defund all of them and get Zoe Dodd out of her fucking job. You know, our organization signed agreements so that we were gagged. And that meant people like myself, we just get pushed out. I don't give a fuck because I'm like, yeah, I'll just get another job, I guess. Because that's not what I'm in it for, you know? And that's what we have to remember. What are we in this for? So where's the fire? Where is the fire? Because we'll sit at tables with people and they have no fire. They have no fire and they're okay with the status quo and they're okay with just collecting numbers. And they are so violent to us. Those public health people, all those people, though the bureaucrats, they are fucking us too. And they are part of that class of people that do not care whether we live or if we die. I can't believe we got to wrap up. This is, this is just... This is just everything. So we're going to wrap up on one final question. So if you could keep this answer short. I don't know what the question is, so please, please make it good. So if, it, if all the uh, panel could keep this one short. I'm not a policy expert. Um, and as far as drugs are concerned, um, my expertise lies in the fact that I've just taken lots of them. Um, I am a medical cannabis um, user in this country, which is why I'm really interested in this. My question to you guys is I face laws such as I have to consume my cannabis in a specific way. Otherwise, if I, if I smoke it, it's illegal. Also, um, every 30 days, if I don't um, purchase my prescription, I am then illegal. So at, as an end user, what can I do to change policy and law? Let's start with leave on that because I think you might have some, some answers on this. I mean, thanks for that. I think this really beautifully picks up on what Zoe and Cassandra have said. You know, the system actually doesn't allow for people to have autonomy around their bodies. You mean, like, so Alex mentioned about the medical cannabis laws that came in in 2018 as a result of campaigning around children's access. The laws have actually changed nothing. Nobody is getting medical cannabis on the NHS. You're all having to go to private prescribers. At release, we're dealing with cases now where people are being threatened with eviction for a legal prescribed script. Driving, you know, their licenses being taken away. And so we're having to get into the weeds of, um, the weeds of, uh, thanks, that was so easy. Wow, Cassandra, low threshold. Um, but we ha we're having to get into like fighting those things. And that's exhausting when the system is meant to have changed, the law is meant to have changed. The laws. When, we, when they get those wins, it isn't actually about, it, it's basically sort of just capitulating to the demands of the media. It's like, it's not about what are we structurally changing in order to make sure that your life is one where you can get your medicine and, and moves forward to getting, rec, you know, adult use cannabis. But I think, you know, again, it is about, and, and you know, Zoe's right to call out, we are not good at movement building in this country. We are not good at community organizing. And I think we have to get better. And I would also say having, and I mean, that's, I'm going to hold release to doing more work with Transform and IDBC and others in that space and, and with people who are working in harm reduction, but also to as movements, you know, people who use cannabis are a large movement. You have a strong voice. And this comes back to your point about the drug exceptionalism. 
we need to work together as a movement to challenge criminalization, to take back autonomy, regardless of the drug that we use. So what I would say is start to, to get in, involved with the, the, the patient groups, but also the wider um, drug advocates in the cannabis movement. But then let's bring all of those movements together because so quickly it can be seeded to capitulation and per policy or to corporates. And that's, we need to all fight together to stop that. So yeah, that would be my. And it's true as well that we got a two tier system because people with mental health notes aren't able to access the current system. And surely that's excluded in its own right. So we're going to have a very quick, like 20 second wrap up because we're well over time now. So start with uh, Professor Alex Stevens. Everything we've heard here today has just been fantastic. You know, we've got to rip up our commas book. We've got to start all over again. So what do we do from this point? How do we mobilise? I'm not a mobiliser, so I'm going to swerve that question and, and pick up something that Cassandra said yesterday and today, really, about, you know, and your question about, you know, our, what's, what's the classism in America like? Well, we've got a racism problem that we have been trying to run away from for far too long. And my consciousness was raised about that at a Drug Policy Alliance conference, actually, and I found out at the Drug Policy Alliance conference that if you're black in America, you're four times more likely arrested and six times more likely to be uh, imprisoned for a drug offence than if you're white. And somebody asked me, well, what's it like in the UK? And to my shame, I couldn't answer that, that nobody had ever done the sums. So I came home and did the sums. And Andrew, you'll like this because it's the factoid you were looking for yesterday. Um, so America, four times arrested, six times more likely imprisoned. Here, it's you're six times more likely to be arrested for drugs if you're black than if you're white. And you're 11 times more likely to be imprisoned if you're black than if you're white. The racial focus of the drug war is even more acute in the UK. As Cassandra said, one of the founding countries of the Atlantic slave state, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised to see that. But there is a resistance to that. I mean, I, I, I live in Medway, Chatham. We have a car park and a hospital named after Sir John Hawkins, who was the first person to lead an organised slaving mission from, the, from England to Africa. But we also have, uh, thanks to the indefatigable, tireless efforts, a woman called Carol Stewart, who runs the Medway African Caribbean Association. We have a blue plaque that recognises Cuff, um, William Cuffey, who was a black man, a chartist, a tailor, who led the movement to expand the vote. Um, we have a, a plaque to Asquith Xavier, who was a man from Dominica, um, who campaigned to stop the racist practice whereby British Rail said you couldn't drive a train if you were black. And those were not victories born just of William Cuffey's activities and Asquith Xavier on their own. As everyone has said here, that was born of a movement. And so I'm agreeing with everyone. It's the movement that we need to build that is going to make this change. Zoe, answer any point you want. Alex, swerve my question. Go for any point you want to wrap up on. I think that we have a lot of commonality between our countries. And I think that there is... Um, strategy that we could all use together and that we can learn from each other. And so I'm really grateful for being here. Um, I'm really glad that Peter asked me to come here. Um, it's been really nice to meet everybody and also for us to just like talk openly and frankly about where we're at. And I think there's room for us um, to do that kind of cross organizing. It is about movement building. It is about a future that we need to envision. It's hard to envision when you feel crushed by the weight of the world and loss. And it's also important we recognize that loss, so I also recognize that it's really hard for a lot of people.
So not to say that you don't have a fire in your belly and you're not doing things. Sometimes it's just like taking care of yourself and taking care of your family, which is very important. So, yeah. So, so just thank you for, for having me here and for everyone being here. And then hopefully we just fight to win. That's absolutely perfect. And Meg? Yeah, I think um, I said at the pre-conference event the other night, um, one of the things that uh, that we have seen, particularly in the drug and alcohol kind of sector within the UK, is there has not been a voice. There's not been a loud voice to challenge against all of the things that is incredibly inspiring to hear Zoe and Cassandra kind of share from from outside of the UK. Um, and when you compare, you know, when you, we heard you talk about the mobilize, mobilizing and uh, it's just not anywhere near that here. And it's both inspiring and, you know, when we went to the National Harm Reduction Conference in, in Puerto Rico last year, um, it, it was again inspiring because I was like, wow, look at this massive harm reduction movement. But that started in, or it started in Liverpool. I know it started in other places. You know, where did it go? And, and then now we look across at you guys and we're like, okay, how do we learn from you? Um, so, yeah, depressing in the fact that we've, we've lost a lot of that, but so empowering that we're coming together to hopefully try and just do so much more in that space. So, yeah, thank you to you guys as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway for me... For the, from the panel and from the weekend is, is that we need to do things together. Um, and, you know, people are the problem, but people are the answer as well, aren't they? And I think, um, you know, f the fire is back in the belly, um, having, having spent time with, with, with you guys. We are the movement, and I'd really like to see us do more than conferences together. You know, we, we, need, to, we need to act to the deaths. It's absolutely right. So, yeah, we need to move. Beef. Um... So after just saying about movement building for, for drug user activism, which I think, you know, we, we need to really put some energy into, is we also need to movement build across the different structural areas that impact on our clients. So like working around housing justice and economic justice, working with civil rights organizations who became so important in the whole um, drugs to be in the US around liberation and relieving the harms of the, the, the criminal um, legal system. Thanks, Katrina. Um, so I think one of the things I would like to do is like almost in many ways sometimes talk less about the drugs and talk more about the, the, the social conditions that we are having to live in and that our clients and the people that we work with and for are being subjugated, subjugated to every single day. So I think like we need to start talking less drugs, more capitalism shit, the system's broken. We need to change it, and they're not going to let us change it. So we need to think about how we do that. Go finally, Cassandra. Go for it. Um, just going to make sure I'm seated. <laughs> um, I, I just want to offer that if we were in a room in the U.S. and had a panel like this, we would say the same thing. <laughs> Like, we would be like, we need to be working together. We're not working together. How many, you know, how many deaths would it take? There's no such thing as evidence-based practice. Like, we would be saying all those things. 
it just looks different because you don't see us every day, right? Like you see what we want you to see. You see the headlines that they put out. And yes, there are some things that have shifted in the U.S. That is true. But I think the thing that has been really hard for me is for people to be like, man, you guys got it together over there. And it's like, no, we don't. So I just want to let you know, like, and we don't have, and you don't have it together in Canada, right? Like, we, we don't. Like, I, I, I want to be really clear. It's very hard everywhere. The treatment people in the U.S., where, like, where you all are is where they're at, right? Work, work, yeah, yeah. The, we're literally the, we're in the same place. I will go to a room in the United States, and it will have, like, 300, 500 black people in there. And I will say, there are not enough black people in here. And they're literally like, I can count the many amount of black people in this room. And shout out to you. I hope I did y'all right. I love you all. Stay strong. And, but I will say the same thing in the US, right? Like, I'll be like, there's not enough of this in here, right? So I, I just want to like contextualize, like, yes, like, you know, Zoe's like, where's the fire and all this stuff? You're, you came here, right? And, 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 and Brighton is awesome. And you you still came here, right? And so it's like, these are all things that, that you're already doing. What I will say is that in order for people who are impacted by drug prohibition, which Cliff Notes is a lot of people, to figure out that we are under a market regime of prohibition, we need to have conversations specifically about prohibition. Prohibition has set the terms of engagement and we need to stop trying to figure out what are the better terms of engagement under prohibition because it does not exist. It is actually a binary. Prohibition or no prohibition. We need to choose no prohibition. Not a little bit of prohibition, not prohibition under a different name, no prohibition because that is what has set the tools. And that conversation is critical and needs to undergird so much more of our conversation because we spend so much time on the drugs conversation, which distracts us as to why, why is fentanyl pop? Why is fentanyl here? Why is GHL here? Why is xylazine here? Like these things exist because we have prohibited the things that the drugs we actually know a lot about. And so we have, they are making the playing field way more dangerous and then laughing at us as we're trying to navigate through the conditions that they keep changing. It's not, we're not the reason we're in this situation. And it's something that I'm very inspired by, by what Zoe said is that we're also not emergency workers. We have turned into emergency workers because our governments have abandoned us. And they spend all that time writing resolutions in the UN that nobody reads, but that dictates the funding of the big countries like the US and the UK to give money to militarize law enforcement around the country to beat on people who are not white. So again, let's talk prohibition, let's burn these old papers, and let's actually, let's actually stop trying to beat the test and actually learn how to treat each other. Perfect round of applause.
Thank you so much for listening and thank you to every single guest for giving such an honest viewpoint. I really hope we get to do more like that because it yielded some fantastic results. Thank you so much. Please do be part of the movement. That's the takeaway, isn't it? That's what we need to do. Keep building momentum, keep building movements, keep talking. So share, if you can, any article, any organisation, be part of it. Thank you so much to all that listen and share this podcast. Thank you to everybody that works on this podcast, to Nikki, the executive producer, for everything you do for cleaning that episode up. My word, you had your your work cut out for you on that. Thank you to Scrooby's Pit for having us on your network. Thank you for John Harris at the network for everything you do. Thank you to Tristan and John for everything you do on the podcast. Big, big thank you to Nigel Brunston as well for the event photography and for lending us the images for the podcast cover and for everything you do in the sector as well. So please find Nigel Nigel Brunston on his Instagram and nigelbrunston.com as well. Thank you so much, Nigel. You're a legend as ever. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. My name is Adfi the Artwork. Right, on that note, let's go. Thank you again for listening and do be part of this movement. See you soon. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.